Well said. The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, therefore, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. But rather, rather, rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been in this series on Romans from uh, chapter 5 uh, through chapter 8. And over the last few weeks, we've, we've gotten a, a really good and grand sense of, of, of this fantastic uh, gift that we've got. We've received this gift of grace. We've received so many fantastic gifts um, that, that it, it, it comes as a, as a little bit of shock in this particular passage that we, that we have to shift. I like what Peter Rollins says. He says, to participate in the crucifixion is what we've been talking about, means to experience a fundamental loss. This statement about loss is not exactly what is happening in Rome, and thus Paul writes this letter. Over the last few weeks, we've been immersing ourselves in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans where he explains and he defends the gospel he defends it very systematically, point by point, heartbeat by heartbeat. <laughs> it's theologically thick and in some places very difficult to understand. As a matter of fact, uh, Greg and I were texting earlier as I was preparing for this sermon. Man, this is, this is a difficult passage with, with so much in it. 
But as we continue in Romans 6 today, I want, to be, I want us to be reminded of a few things. That when we're reminded of these things, they're going to carry us forward towards, towards the end of, of, of this section today. First, the section of Romans 5 through 8 is a very important one in which Paul makes clear the reason for and the implications of the grace of God. He makes very clear the reasons for grace and the implications of grace. Those blessings that Pastor Greg uh, and others have shared are the first part of chapter 5 and kind of throughout chapter 5. And they're these things. That we are justified, right? That that is we've been brought into a correct, a right relationship with God. Pastor Tim put that very eloquently to us as he talked about the justification for writing, you know, on on a script and on the page. We also have peace with God. And this is not a lack of war, not a lack of stress, not a lack of pain, but real peace in the midst of those things. We have access to God. The door has been unlocked and is open. The the curtain has been ripped so that we might step into this relationship with God that that was previously unavailable to us. We have hope. We have hope for a coming glory because of what we get to celebrate. That God will make all things new. God has made all things new and God will make all things new. The second thing that we need to know is that as we heard last week, that those who are of Adam's family are bound to the law. And those who unite themselves with Jesus' family are bound to grace. And Paul makes significant differentiation between what was accomplished under the law and what is accomplished under grace. Christ's death and resurrection free us From the penalty and the power of sin. Let me say that again. Christ's death and resurrection free us from the penalty and the power of sin. Third, Paul has focused us to this point. And he's been been really focused on the security that we have because of this free grace. That the people of God because of the glorious triumph of grace, are free. And we have security in God. And he's focused so much that he has to to deal with this next section in a different way. He, He says this, chapter five, verse 20. He says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Wherever sin was, grace was more so that sin didn't have the last word. Grace is so important, so incredible that we continue to call it a glorious triumph. This grace is not a grace that you or I did anything to deserve. As a matter of fact, it's, it's the opposite, right? Right? We don't deserve any of the blessings that we previously talked about in, in chapter 5. We don't deserve those blessings, but they're given to us. Paul chooses here then to make a shift. Okay? 
He's, he's been talking in chapter five and even previously about what this looks like and this free gift that we get and especially to the Roman church, especially to the Gentiles. Look, you're involved in this. You're, you're a part of this. You get this free gift. But the shift he has to make is because there are critics out there and there always will be. The critics that have been asking questions of this gospel that Paul preaches. He go, and he will go on for the next two chapters, chapter six and chapter seven, to answer critics. And he does that very systematically. The question that he presents here in verse one of chapter six is in direct response to a criticism that he's heard that is being made uh, to him and to the gospel by Jews or Jewish Christians at the time. That criticism is this. And he actually hears it and we can, we can look back in Romans and find it in Romans chapter three, verse eight. It says, why not say, let us do evil that good may result. This idea that, well, sin is over here and well, it's okay because God has given us this forgiveness. God has given us this grace that is so great that we're so secure that why not just continue on in my, in my own life? I don't have to change anything, Paul. When I read that, I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I've, I've heard, you know, sophomores in high school say that to me often. Wow, why do I have to change my life? Why do I have to do any of that? And it's not just sophomores in high school that I've heard that from. You, you don't get off the hook that easily. It's that fantastic grace, that amazing grace, that amazing forgiveness that brings us to this space. That Paul wants to respond, and Paul says this, Romans 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Paul's answer is immediate to the critics then and now and very emphatic. And, and Paul says, you have got to be kidding me. Nope, no, uh-uh. There is no way that we should be continuing on in the sins that we have so that God's grace can increase, so that we can test God's grace, that we can access more forgiveness. That is not what is being written here. But why, Paul? If my sin causes more grace, then what's the big deal? Paul goes on, verses three and four. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too may have new life. Uh, according to John Stott, there are um, three things that we need to understand about the baptism that Paul is talking about. First, this is a water baptism, not baptism by fire, not baptism by spirit. For those Christians in Rome, their conversion would have come in the context of baptism. And they would have been very familiar with that reality. It's something that happened along with saying yes to Jesus, you, you got baptized. In that space, that would have made immediate sense to them. It makes the question, don't you know, a very rhetorical question. Of course they know. 
Second, baptism signifies our union with Christ, especially Christ crucified and risen. This idea of uniting with Christ is to participate with Christ's crucifixion and death. See, in our participation, we say yes to the family of Jesus. In our participation, we enter into a relationship with Jesus. In our participation, we come into allegiance with Christ Jesus as Lord of our lives. Third, baptism does not, and this needs to be very clear, baptism does not by itself secure what it signifies. Remember, our justification is by faith alone. Paul has gone to great lengths to state that point, and he's not walking that back now. Baptism is a sign and a symbol of the reality of justification through faith. As Augustine states, visible sign of invisible grace. The point Paul is making is less about baptism. He only mentions it here in these two verses and then doesn't say a word about it again. It's more about the reality that being a Christian and being Christian involves a personal, volitional, participatory, experiential identification with Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection. His death to sin. And and we might say, well, Jesus didn't sin. And and that's true. And here we've got to understand something that that doesn't really come across in in our passage. Is that when we talk about this death to sin, is that it's much more legal than it is medical. I just heard all the lawyers in the room go, oh, they're talking, talking to me. Think of it this way. It's like, um, it's like a class action lawsuit, right? You, you guys have gotten those flyers in the mail where they're saying, hey, if you've ever shopped at this store and you bought that you know, weird thing, then go ahead and you know, give us a ring or sign up the thing and you can be involved in this class action law. You guys have gotten those, right? And it's so great, right? When that check comes for like two cents, you're like, yes, I won. It's so much better with Christ, right? That we get to sign on with Christ as the representative for the thing that is wrong. And that as we sign on, we get all the benefits without having to go to the cross. We don't have to step into that because Christ was our representative. That class action lawsuit where we sign on to Christ is where we unite with Christ, where we say yes to Jesus. Paul goes on, verses five through seven. He says, if we've been united with him, we signed on to Christ. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly be also united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Did you hear that last part? Anyone who has died 
has been freed from sin. Paul has explained our unity with Christ's death, right? This idea of signing on with Christ's death and now expresses its implication. You and I are free now from sin. But there's a nuance here that doesn't come across in our English translation again. And that nuance is is carried forward like this. Two ways that freedom is understood. The first is justified. The technical term is justified. We're justified to God. We're made right with God in the person and work of Jesus. Conversely, we are justified away from sin. We are no longer in right relationship to the work and consequence of sin. Let me say that again. You and I are no longer in right relationship with sin. Prior to Christ's coming, prior to us to signing on to that that contract with Christ, the one he offers us for free, we had a right relationship with sin. We got it. We get it. We know how to work it. But when we sign on to Christ, we say, you know what? We left that behind because Jesus nailed sin to the cross. And now our relationship with sin is an absolute mess. Praise God. In this reality, our justification means that we are free from the power of sin and everything has changed. But what is this change, right? Paul goes on. Verses 8 through 10, he says, Now if we died with Christ, right, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here's what we know. Death no longer has lordship over us. Sin no longer has the last word and either does death. If you and I die with Christ and that we don't just understand what that means. If you and I die with Christ and actually allow ourselves to experience it, that stepping away, that walking away from sin. If you and I die with Christ and fundamentally lose ourselves The life that we live now, the life that we live today, the life that we live as we walk out these doors, we will live to God because we have been given to God. We've been given the grace of God. You know, as I was writing this uh, sermon, I became acutely aware of how structured and how logical Paul makes his arguments. And he doesn't stop. It'll it'll continue on for a little while here. I'm I'm also aware of of how structured and logical this this sermon is. This one point follows on another. And one of the things that I've tried to do in my sermon preparation is to continue to ask the question, so what? 
I get this stuff. I'm understanding it, Lord, because of the grace of God in me. I'm beginning to understand it, but so what? What happens when, when we're all done here and the lights are off and we walk out the door and tomorrow morning when we go to our everyday lives, how does this make sense in our world? How do we import the word of God and, and, and make it Make it real. How do, how do I hear this sermon? How do you hear this sermon on Wednesday of this week? I, I think that, um, I believe that the stories of this world that we create um, help us understand this stuff more. Because they're our stories, the, the, the honest human stories, right? So there is this, this one story about a convict. And, and many of you will, will, will get this and know this quickly. This man served for 19 years hard labor for stealing food. And after being released, he was uh, forced again uh, because of his poverty to, to beg for food. And in his begging, he found himself at a house of worship, actually um, at the house of a bishop. A bishop gave him a meal and a place to stay at his house for the night. In the middle of the night, the man got up and began to steal the bishop's things. And here is the rest of the story. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes? Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry! Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him! 
You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. Don't forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. What a great story. And what we know from later is that, is that grace continues to win out in his life. You see, what, what the law could not accomplish in 19 years of hard labor is accomplished in the gift of candlesticks, right? The gift of grace to let go. And it's not just a story that, that lives on the screen. It's a story that lives in our lives. It's a story that you and I also have somewhere, some, somehow in the back of our, our minds and in our experience, we've been given grace. I, I can go back uh, to, to myself in, in middle school and I remember a moment in my, in my life where uh, I, I decided that I wanted to hang out with this guy and we ended up skipping school for a whole entire week. Uh, my parents didn't know, and I was like, oh my goodness, through the weekend? This is awesome. That wouldn't happen now, like phone calls all day long, whatever. But Monday morning, I went back to school. I got back into school, and, and, and I got called into the principal's office, and the principal said, you know, well, where were you? And I said, you know, I, I just didn't want to be here. I wanted to hang out and go do things, and, you know, I, things that I probably shouldn't have been doing. I, I was honest about it, at least. I asked the principal, I said, well, what are you going to do? You can call my parents. And he sat there and he thought for a second and he said, no, I'm not going to call your folks. Go back to class. Don't do this again. It's the simple moments of grace in our life that shift because I'll tell you what, from middle school all the way through high school, I probably didn't miss a whole lot of, a lot of days. Other than senior ditch day. <laughs> but it's that simple story that makes huge sense in my life of what little bits of grace will do to shift the way that I continue to walk and move forward in my life. And it's not just the little stories. I could tell you stories of friends of mine who, who are married and uh, have gone through moments of infidelity, yet because of grace, because of them continuing to seek Jesus, they are still married and thriving in their marriage. It's grace that allows for those things to happen. And it's grace that'll move things forward, not the law. These stories are in all of our lives. And, and when we speak about this unbelievable grace, it's our, it's our responsibility to respond, right? Pastor Greg stated that we should 
we should be able to receive Jesus. We should be able to receive the grace in Jesus. That we should represent Jesus. That not only should we receive that grace, but we should give it like it was going out of style. And that we should remember Jesus every moment. What is Christ doing in my midst that I can step into and walk with? I absolutely agree with those things. And yet this is what Paul says. Paul says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he says, therefore, all of that to say, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. You and I, because we have been restored to right relationship to God through faith must consider ourselves dead and alive. Dead to sin, alive to God. How? Paul is very logical here. We are not under law, but we are under grace. Do not let sin reign, but let God reign. Do not be an instrument of wickedness. Offer yourselves to God, your whole selves to God as an instrument of righteousness. Dead to pride, alive to humility. Dead to lust, alive to appropriate intimacy. Dead to greed, alive to hunger. Dead to despair, alive to hope. Dead to chaos, alive to peace. Dead to fear, alive to real and honest love, dead to sin, alive to God, dead and alive. Amen. But that's my list. What's yours? Before we close out this morning, I just want to give you a few seconds to think through that, to allow God to speak to you. What is God calling you to let go of, to die to, so that you might live in a different way? If for nothing else, that preaching moment doesn't allow us to be introspective about what God is doing in us and for us in this very moment, if for nothing else, we just have a second to sit down and reflect and allow God to move in us. Amen. If you're sitting there today and wondering how do I continue to move this forward, 
I'm stuck in sin. I don't know how to do that. There is going to be a pastoral team of people to my left, your right, willing to pray with you and for you. Whatever it is you've got going on, if you're having a difficult time hearing what God's doing, they're here. We're here. To my right, your left, the connect banner over there, there will be people there. Because this is such a big room. This is such a big group of people. It's hard to have the conversations that we need to have. And so we have ways of connecting you to smaller groups of folk so that you don't feel alone in this space. And a reminder about Holy Week. This card in your handout. It's not only a card as a reminder for you to put on your fridge, but one to invite others to come to what I believe is the most important day as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. Would you stand for this morning's benediction? May the God of grace and mercy and peace cause you to know, cause you to experience, cause you to believe that sin has no more power over you. So that as you go out this week, that you have grace to receive, you have grace to give, and your life falls in line with whom God wants you to be. Amen and amen.